All right, shut up. It's first thing in the bloody morning for me. Um, a couple of months ago, when I agreed to do this, and Jeremy finally slammed me for the wall uh, for what I was supposed to be talking about, um, I told him it was going to be about uh, living in the network and the digital future. So, um, who remembers Blackadder then? It was reported in, it was in the months before the Berlin Wall came down. There was a large graffito added to the mess of scrawl on the west face of the wall. And it read, don't worry, Baldrick has a cunning plan. <laughs> Baldrick was a character in the Blackadder series of comedies on BBC. In most of those series, uh, Baldrick was a peasant idiot who frequently devolved to the level of uh, a human-shaped animal, frankly. But not in the first series. He was a peasant still, but he was clever and devious. All the traits they gave to Blackadder himself in, in the subsequent series. And they also gave Blackadder Baldrick's best recurring line, which was, don't worry, I have a cunning plan. He was a cunning man, old Baldrick, and deliberately or not, and I, I suspect not because Richard Curtis and his crew aren't paid to overthink things in public like I am. They evoked a lost tradition of old England. The witch doctors of rural Britain, they were all peasants, <clears throat> common people. They weren't called witch doctors or shaman or magicians. Even though they were all those things, they were called the cunning folk. And whenever I find myself somehow fooled into doing one of these talks, it's on the grounds that some confused soul thinks that I will talk about the digital world and the future. What always happens is that I rant for an unspecified length of time about obscure history and fringe beliefs. So you need to understand that you are now trapped in this room with me. <laughs> and I've already been paid. This is my cunning plan. The last of the cunning men is generally accepted to be Cunning Murrell of Hadley in Essex. James Murrell, born in Rochford, like me, and like most people, up until uh, the turn of the century in the area, because that's where the local maternity ward was. Um, it's all been knocked down now. There's just a giant chimney and an incinerator, because they were considered to be the parts of the hospital that had heritage value. Because, you know, we like fire in Essex, apparently. Rochford is um, where the peculiar people came from, which was a puritanical, faith-healing Christian sect founded by a drunk, because Essex, 20-odd <laughs> years before James Murrell hatched his last cunning plan. I grew up in Thundersley, which borders Hadley. Uh, so did 
Bernard Cornwall, actually, who wrote the Sharp novels, uh, only he was raised by peculiar people. All those uh, South Essex villages, like Thundersley and Hadley with Lay or Lee on the end of their names, were originally Viking clearances in the forest. Lee means uh, clearing or grove. Uh, Thundersley, which was, according to my old teacher, the Thunder Clearing, is a name that, in reality, roughly translates as uh, the Sacred Grove of Thor. There are two Thundersleys on the East Coast. There's another Thundersley up near Ipswich, and there's an old story that holds that Thor would fly over both Thundersleys on Thursdays, <coughs> which is a crappy commute. I mean, I've even done it in a plane, and, and trust me, I felt bad for the guy. The name Ipswich, sadly, has nothing to do with witches. The, the witch part is a corruption of uh, the old English word wick, uh, which means beach market. I was an Ipswich Town football supporter when I was at school. Uh, Yeah, there's always one, but it is always just one. (laughs) I think I I like it just because of that vague folkloric connection, because it felt a bit local, and because it wasn't as embarrassing as supporting Southend United, who were and are complete shit. We forget things. We do, as a culture. Hadley means (coughs) heath clearing, or the clearing where heather grows. Uh, There are still patches of heathland uh, scattered around the area. Back in Morrill's day, they were a lot wider and dotted with uh, these broad, marshy pools that were used by the locals for washing water back then. Down the hill from us in Benfleet, which means tree stream, and it's a hell of a hell. No one's commuting up and down that bugger just to wash, believe me. The Vikings were actually driven off out of the forest, out of what was the Danelaw at that point, by the Saxon king, Alfred, which makes me wonder if Cornwall had reason for following the Sharp books with a series of novels about Alfred and the latter days of the Saxons. So, the things we take with us. I learned a lot of this at school from a man called Mr. Lees. uh, Thundersley County Junior School. But nobody ever called it that. It was locally known by the name of the narrow road it sat at the top of. If anyone ever asked, it was Dark Lane School. And I first learned about time at Dark Lane. Now that I think about it, it was old Mr. Lees who would send us to go and hunt for fossils on the paths around Thundersley Common on the heathland. Uh, It was the village's last remaining big plateau of heathland, in fact, by that point. We would very excitedly, bring back finds to show Mr. Lees, which he would carefully and solemnly study through the glasses that would make his eyes look like giant headlamps. 
before authoritatively proclaiming that they were just bloody rocks and what the hell was wrong with us anyway. I'm pretty sure he went to his grave convinced that he'd raised nothing but untold generations of congenital village idiots. Sometimes you'd see him looking wistfully at the, the plain tarmac junction in the middle of the village where he remembered a weir was once bubbling, as if wondering what happened to him, wondering where all the time had gone and what the hell was wrong with any, everyone anyway. Um, the things you can't bury, like time. When James Murrell died, a little over a hundred years before I was born, there were maybe 350 people living in Hadley. There's, um, Christ, 20,000 there now. They didn't even start building proper houses in Hadley till after Cunning Murrell died. Cunning Murrell. Leaving his house at night wearing iron goggles and carrying a whalebone umbrella, copper bracelet on his wrist. Witch doctor of darkest Essex, an English shaman, living a little outside the village, as is the shaman's way. He's for the village, but not of it. The shaman exists a little outside the normal world, not least because the shaman was usually too weird and creepy for anyone to want to live next to. The shaman is always a little bit out there. There's uh, a folk tradition called hedge riding. The hedge was considered the natural border between the world we know and the other world. The place on the other side where things are ethereal, evanescent, ephemeral. To hedge ride is to walk the border and take a look over there at all that spooky action at a distance. The copper bracelet was his wearable to detect lies. History does not report whether or not it also counted his steps. James Murrell's iron goggles allowed him to see the other world in action to perceive ghosts and demons. Uh, it was uh, smart glasses 0.1. Google iron. Iron was uh, well known to be anathema to Satan and all his little wizards, as uh, Blackadder put it. If you asked Murrell, in fact, he would proclaim himself to be the devil's master. Strolling all over the area at night, looking around, watching the stars, because he was a famously skilled astrologer, which at the very least did require rigorous and accurate tracking of the sky. Computing the magic of celestial mechanics. Burying witch bottles here and there. Check-ins and map anchors. Upending his umbrella and opening it there to keep the various plants he found along the way. The cunning folk were herbalists, but they weren't just herbalists. They weren't just 
hedge riders, and witch doctors. The cunning folk were the high magicians of old England. Back at Cunning Murrell's house, he had a mirror, which he could apparently use to find lost objects. Uh, A little window to find stuff in. Years and years ago, I wrote a science fiction comic which featured in its first issue, amongst the smart contact lenses and the body modification hobbyists who called themselves grinders, some of my crappy science fiction writer prediction misadventures, the the tricks and traps that most of us idiots in the field get our legs clawed by. This book featured a system where you could put little tags on items and find them via an internet connection. Googling for your stuff, we used to call it. I had to yank this stupid bit out of the first issue when a Coda acquaintance told me she'd bought essentially the same product from bloody Walmart the week before. Which is just one more reason why science fiction writers should never, ever, ever allow people to believe that we deal in the business of prediction. Not least because it turns out that cunning bloody Murrell had a bloody mirror that let him Google for people's stuff in the bloody 1800s. I mean, why even bother anymore? The cunning folk needed this kind of equipment because they were dealing with all kinds of bastardry. There were, after all, witches all over the place. Your actual black hats. That's what the the witch bottles were for. Witch bottles were rural antivirus. They were also bottles filled with piss and hair and nail parings, but work with me here. This was the style of scripting attacks at the time. Maybe a few rusty nails thrown in there with a lump or two of menstrual blood and a splinter of bone all for the driving off of witches and the counteraction of their spells. This was the state of security out there on the hedge between this world and the other world. It didn't need to be renewed annually, (coughs) although I imagine it was a pricey service as Cunning Murrell had 20 kids, presumably because the television hadn't been invented yet. And it had pretty good coverage. There was a time where there was a cunning man or cunning woman within 10 miles of every village in Essex. You could find them in cities too, but they tended to be quieter there. Um, The density of cities leads to, shall we say, a pressure of law. Out there in the wilds, the strange rural Christianity they worked within was more acceptable and harder to oversee. The priesthood in the cities were the sysadmins of religion. They were immersed in the code. The cunning folk were the local IT geezer who first checks to see if you turned it off and on again. The perception of heresy always came from the cities. In the villages, people were just doing the best they could under the baleful glare of God. Because this is how it worked back then. 
This is where we get the term God-fearing folk. It's in the manual, Psalm 111.10. The fear of God, the awe and dread of all that spooky action at a distance. And the devil <clears throat> was understood to be less an adversary than a particularly evil employee of God. <clears throat> he was, in fact, that bastard in the human resources department who looks for ways to screw with your life. Satan was real, like the record cover said. And he wandered around each day with an eye out for opportunities to tempt ordinary people into sinning. And God allowed it. There was presumably some kind of housing crisis in heaven. And he let Satan roam the earth, tricking people out of their renting privileges in the afterlife. And the cunning folk were the people's recourse. They were the firewall between this world and the other world. That's why Cunning Murrell needed his AR goggles. Oculus Rift for demonology. It was down to them <clears throat> to get people out of Satan's traps. I mean, it was no wonder the high priests of Christian code distrusted them. The cunning folk worked on the front line of the numinous. Interaction with the uncanny and the profane that was utterly unsupervised by the management. Hackers, in league with the fantastic, taking their night walks inside the operating system of Christianity 4.0. In league with the fantastic. That's a thought to keep hold of. Everyone has always been a little nervous of those people in communication with the other world. When John Logie Baird went to the Daily Express to tell them he'd invented the television, the news editor famously declared Baird a lunatic for claiming he'd made a machine for seeing by wireless and had him ejected, saying, watch him, he may have a razor on him. <coughs> Cunning Murrell died on December the 15th, 1860, 105 years before the first pirate television broadcast was made in Essex, having predicted his own passing exactly. That was the year that was the year of the Food and Drugs Act, which was Britain's first try at legally preventing people from adulterating food. Because at that time it wasn't unusual to find ground glass in processed sugar or lead in coffee and you know, whatever cunning Murrell might have felt like dosing people with on the slime. <coughs> Dickens began Great Expectations. The street tram was introduced up in Birkenhead. The name Birkenhead probably comes from the birch trees that stood on the Wirral headland back in the days of the Cornovii, who ran the place before they allied with Mercia and went mob-handed to Oswestry to kill and cut the head off Oswald, who was the actual king in the north. There's still uh, a, St. Oswald's, uh, a St. Oswald's church outside town there, uh, the cult of St. Oswald, Oswald, 
being based on the belief that he did in fact have a magic severed head. The first nursing college, based on the methods of Florence Nightingale, was opened at St. Thomas's Hospital in London. That St. Thomas being uh, <coughs> Thomas Beckett, the man of whom Henry II is supposed to have said, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest. The somewhat more verbose but supposedly correct version of that line, reported by a man reveling in the name Edward Grimm, was, what miserable drones and traitors have I nourished and brought up in my household who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born cleric? Fucking drones, man. They're everywhere nowadays. Beckett, of course, was a godly man who became a cunning man only after his death when cults of sainthood, like St. Oswald's, told stories of him banning the nightingales in Otford from singing or causing the populace of a Kentish village he found particularly offensive to grow tails. Proper wizard shit. Maybe that's why in 2006 he was voted the second worst British person ever. Just behind Jack the Ripper. <laughs> and he was denounced for being the inventor of the soundbite. The first sound recording of human speech, which was called a phonautogram, was made in 1860. And that's a huge signifier. In it, uh, Edward Leon Scott de Martinville sings Au Claire de la Lune, a folk song wherein the singer summons Piero, the chalk-faced peasant of Commedia dell'arte, who by the 20th century would appear on stage looking like a dead man, uh, a ghost in a black skull cap. The puppet that John Logie Baird had televised in his tests, which was called Stooky Bill, was a ghostly, chalk-faced, dark-haired horror that could have passed for Piero. The phonautogram haunts Thomas Edison, who was then a teenage telegraph operator, and 17 years later, he inaugurates the modern age of recorded, replayable sound. Music soon stops being a thing you have to attend or learn to produce, which is huge. It may be the first social skill to be deleted by modern technology. No more of going back to someone's place for a sing-song or gathering around the old Joanna. No more parlour songs. The beginning of folk music collection as extinction crawls down the lanes and across the hollers. The top 40, CDs, the Keep Music Live movement, Napster, BitTorrent, and listening to music through YouTube all beckon. Three years before Edison's invention, Alexander Graham Bell was also farting around with a phonautogram and the telegraph, which gave us the harmonic telegraph, which I mention purely because I just love the name. Um, and then, yes, he also went on and built the telephone, which, you know, if you're interested in that sort of thing, which also led to people in Paris listening to concerts down the phone wire. Bell himself uh, refused to have a telephone in the house. 
He was more interested in the photophone, which used modulated light to transmit sound wirelessly. Uh, he was also interested in sterilizing humans. He believed to be defective, but we'll, we'll pass on that. The thing about the photophone was that it couldn't protect light from disturbance, but it meant that through a broadcasting photophone, he could hear shadows, and he could hear the sound of a cloud crossing the sun. He would have liked, I think, to be a, a grim doctor of the human village and to speak in light. Edison once told people that he was inventing a spirit phone to talk to the other world with. He later claimed that at least one of those statements was made just to mess with people. But he didn't recant all of those interviews. And he was happy for everyone to keep calling him the Wizard of Menlo Park, the Cunning Man of New Jersey. Herman Hollerith was born in 1860. In 1882, which was the year Edison switched on the first power station in Manhattan, Hollerith left Manhattan for MIT, where he began the experiments that led him to invent punch card data processing, founding the Tabulating Machine Company, which later merged with the Computing Tabulating Recording Company to become IBM. IBM, inventors of the hard drive, built the mainframes that drove the first American packet switch network, which was one of the progenitors of the internet. Thomas Edison indirectly created the recording artist industry. Herman Hollerith indirectly created the death of the recording artist industry. That is some long-tail disruption right there. Within a year of Cunning Murrell's death, we had a modern theory of chemical structure, the first implication of the Gondwana land supercontinent, the identification of the speech center of the brain, the first proper color photograph, the Gatling gun, the first all-iron battleship. 1860 is one of those periods where it becomes easy to draw a line between the old world and the new. Hedges are being replaced by brick and steel. The other world is being walled off. It's one of those popular tropes of fantastic fiction. When the magic goes away, crushed out by the grim mechanical march of reason and science, the time where there are no more cunning folk and no more cunning plans. But that time never really comes, does it? The last time I was in Brighton, I talked about this modern spell right here. The central metaphor of the iPad was magic. From deep within his cunning reality distortion field, Steve Jobs insisted that the iPad was magic. He used the word, and this is why. You could point at a magic mirror with your finger and cause mysterious and wonderful things to happen as if you were a wizard. Magic clings to the digital world, <coughs> as if the digital world was actually the other world. How long did it take for automatic network computing actions to be described as happening automagically? 
1963, DARPA, another founder of the internet, founded Project Mac at MIT. And one of the things they summoned with that money was a computer program that runs as a background process without requiring the direct guidance and control of an active user. And they called it a daemon. A daemon was an intercessor spirit, something between human and God, a guide between the two worlds. Daemon, a Greek term, was eventually co-opted by Christianity 1.0 to become demon, one of Satan's little wizards. In fact, a computer was, previous to that date, a term used to describe a person who could perform calculations incredibly quickly. Florence Cushman, also born in 1860, was an astronomer and computer who worked with a woman who had the most marvellous name, Annie Jump Cannon. And they worked together in the field of stellar classification. They created the basis of modern astronomy. Henrietta Swan-Levitt, who measured the cogs of the sky until we could calculate the distances between the galaxies. Cunning women, changing our understanding of the stars above, making sense of magic. And if this all seems <clears throat> a bit tangled up and full of ghosts to this point, well, that's how it felt out in the woods in 1860. It was years before science even had its first moment of adolescent hubris and declared its work done for the first time, which happened. No less a figure than Lord Kelvin asserted that the project of physics was essentially complete in 1900, apart from some work to be done around black body radiation and um, the luminiferous ether. He also believed that aviation had no chance of success and was of the opinion that there was only 400 years' worth of oxygen left in the atmosphere. <laughs> he fell over in the winter of 1860 and broke his leg and clearly had it coming. The things we forget, you see. Modern science emerges from the other world. It emerges from René Descartes, being set on the course of analytical geometry by a knight's visions induced by a divine spirit from Robert Boyle of Boyle's Law and his fascination with the idea that the philosopher's stone could draw angels down, a physical object beaming magnetism into the other world. From the proto-science of alchemy, um, and alchemy was essentially hedge magic for posh people, uh, the rural practice of the cunning folk being predicated on the fact that we don't know everything and have to keep learning and looking. If the world was small enough to be completely knowable, we wouldn't need cunning folk. If giant security agencies were capable of actually knowing everything happening right now, instead of just storing it on rented Amazon servers, the world would be a very different place and they wouldn't need to hire their own cunning folk to read the tea leaves, and Edward Snowden would just be a Harry Potter impersonator living with a pole dancer in Hawaii instead of being a boy wizard working tech support in Russia. If Albert Einstein, 
the last century's very poster boy for the cunning man and the wild-haired magician of science knew one thing, then it was simply that there was always more to be known. He didn't pridefully condemn dreams of physics and incomplete, incomplete theories. He pointed off into the future, and he named the unknown things as, in fact, spooky action at a distance. Cunning folk don't live in hubris. When they do, when they start claiming that they're the devil's master and that they can disrupt everything and exert complete control over the real world and the other world, then that particular cycle is coming to an end. If they are very cunning, then at the end they can predict nothing but the day of their own death. Of course, being cunning, they're not going to fall into the trap of trying to predict things 20 years ahead because that's a mugs game. They would peer into the immediate future, of course, for a price, studying the cogs of the sky and the view through the magic mirror. But it should never be forgotten that the cunning folk were the shamans of the English countryside. And shamans, if you ask them, work with the ancestors. Put another way, they talk to dead people. And so do you. That's what living in the network and working in the net is. You are in conversation every day with Jacquard and Korsakov, Ada Lovelace, Babbage, Herman Hollerith, Erna Hoover, Alan Turing, John Napier, Heron of Alexandria, Al Jazari, Pingala, Liang Lingzan, all the way back to whoever cut tally marks into the Ishango bone 20,000 years ago. These are the spirits you speak to as you enact your shamanic workings. These are your cunning folk. Which all sounds a bit weird and woo-woo for these prosaic norm-core times where people are unironically wearing beige again. <laughs> but, you know, the hell with that. These are your people. Your history is older than Stonehenge. You are of the current-day population of cunning folk. And you come from that point in deep time where stories and counting were invented. Fiction and numbers are both systems for calculating truth. They come from the same moment. It's why we count our stories, and it's why our stories count. All the way from the days when people operating the world in new ways seemed like wizards to everybody around them. In league with the fantastic... That's you. You are in communication with the other world. Intercessors between the physical and the luminiferous ether, conducting spooky action at a distance. I'd love to be able to tell you a story about the future, not least because that's what I was actually paid for. But I'd rather tell you a story that counts. I'd rather give you a sense 
and where you might come from. Because you need to know where you've been to know where to go. The future is your story to tell. <coughs> and maybe you have more options for the future than you might have thought. Maybe there are different ways to see what comes next. Wear your iron goggles. Walk down dark lane at night to see what you can see. Stand by the weir and look at the river of time. Understand that you are part of something very old and yet constantly renewed and that you may think you can forget history, but history will certainly not forget you. We all need a cunning plan. So be cunning. Walk down dark lane in league with the fantastic. Thank you for your time.